1: And welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your co-host Nicole Powell. I'm here with the Reverend Dr. Courtney Pace, and we're both really excited today to talk about her newest work, which is Freedom Faith: The Woman's Vision of Profia Hall. So, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
1: So, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit more about um, your journey, your work, and why that's led you to the process of creating Freedom Faith.
2: Wonderful. So. I am currently Associate Professor of Church History at Memphis Theological Seminary, where I also serve as Director of Admissions. Before that, I taught in the Religion department at Baylor and in a completely previous life, I wrote audio or audio recognition software for an, a smart home. So um, I've had kind of a zigzag journey, which I think is the case for most women. I You know, as someone who was young and good in STEM fields, I was often recruited for minority engineering programs, which also had a large African-American population. And so um, I think that that context, in a way, was my beginning point into studies of African-American religion. And I went to University of Texas at Arlington, which actually has a very racially diverse engineering program. But at that time, all of the student support services for minority engineering students were for people of color, not for women. And so all of my mentors going through um, going through undergraduate were scholars of color, and it gave me wonderful exposure to <clears throat> disparities in institutional settings and being able to contextualize what I had faced as a woman with experiences of others. Then I, uh, in my last year of college, my life kind of went topsy turvy and i ended up going to seminary finally answering a call that i had put off for a very long time and um you know that was where i really had to come out as a progressive in order to affirm my own call and and if you've studied narratives of women in ministry it really is sort of a coming out experience to publicly name your call to move your life oriented around accepting that call and getting the training that you need um, and my road led me to Memphis, which is a wonderful place to do what I do. We have students from age 21 to 85 who are from multiple states, who are from over 25 denominations. And we're all trying to learn together. What does it mean to be the hands and feet of Christ in our communities? What does it mean to um, to live out the gospel in the midst of gentrification and Um, disenfranchisement and sexism and homophobia? What what does it mean to be faithful as the church in a cult that is hostile to those who bring a prophetic word? Um, And I would say quite a bit of my journey has been a much lesser intensity more pattern to that of uh, Reverend Dr. Prathia Hall. I was later in life accepting my call my first marriage was not supportive of that call. And so I too had to navigate a divorce in the midst of finishing my PhD um, while raising a child. Um, and I've I've found that the work that I, I mean, in a nutshell, what I study is social justice movements in American religion, but I've really focused on the religious leadership of black women. And Dr. Hall has formed me spiritually, theologically, personally, more than anyone else in my entire life. I've been listening to her preaching and reading her words for more than a decade, trying to immerse myself in her story in order to write this book. And um, it's such a privilege for me to be able to share this story with the world, to invite those who knew her to learn more about her and those who did not get to know her to be influenced by her, even as she has already
1: joined the ancestors. Yeah, and I, I think it's important, especially in the womanist tradition, you know, storytelling and people or Black women telling our stories for themselves, um, particularly given the fact that we're pretty much erased from a lot of different histories, um, especially the civil rights movement. So why why choose Prathia Hall's story and why is it important for readers to learn more about her, right, her life?
2: Wonderful. I'm glad to answer that question. You're absolutely right that most histories of Black church, of the civil rights movement, omit black women's stories, and even histories of feminist gains omit black women's stories. And so womanism offers a much needed holy correction to the blindsidedness of white feminism. And, uh, you know, Pripyat's story brings us to many intersections, right? So she she had families in the South, but she was raised in North Philadelphia, which is a very under-resourced neighborhood within walking distance of Temple University. It's where the 1964 race riots Philadelphia broke out. That was her, her neighborhood. In fact, those race riots, she's only a couple of blocks from her house. They lived very near the social gospel ministry church that her family organized. And uh, because of those experiences, and also her being one of the few black students at a predominantly white high school, she went to Philadelphia high school for girls. She was able to navigate and translate between different contexts as easy as breathing. So, the student on the coordinating committee invited from around the country to come south. But what happened was a lot of white college students from the north came south and had no understanding of Southern culture, of the importance of religion, of Southern respectability and mores, of the danger of things like Black men escorting white women, of the need for propriety in the way that you dress. Um, And so Prathia almost single-handedly trained every new incoming group of volunteers with SNCC so that they would understand how to keep everybody safe in the way that they carried themselves. There's a section of the book that talks about um, white women not being accustomed to the kind of limitations they had to have in order to live safely in the South. Or even some of the white men taking offense at not being able to go out late at night and not realizing how dangerous what they were doing was how terroristic white supremacy would be toward them if they didn't um, proactively eliminate as much scandal as possible. Um, and then you, in the, as you read the book, you get a sense that Prathia Hall was actually a very key leader. Martin Luther King described her as the one platform speaker he preferred not to follow. To my knowledge, he's not said that about anyone else. So he's holding her in esteem. You'll see um, things that people like John Lewis have said about her, Jeremiah Wright. I mean, she was so well admired. Most people didn't recognize that she was the same age as them because she carried herself with so much wisdom and austerity. She provided strategic leadership to the projects that SNCC was doing in southwest Georgia. She was running civil rights collectively in Atlanta for a good chunk of 1964, she led the Selma Project after Bernard Lafayette joined the SCLC, so she really is providing key leadership. And We know names like John Lewis, we know Fred Shuttlesworth, we know Jim Foreman, we might know Fannie Lou Hamer, but most of us have never heard of Prithia Hall, and her story is key to understanding a fuller, a fuller idea of what happened in the movement, of the kind of door-to-door canvassing that SNCC was doing, of the the way that faith melded together with political convictions in in the declaration that every citizen should have a right to vote, and that we have a responsibility not only to make sure that others have the right to vote, but to make sure that the system is set up to perpetuate that right of access. And she's doing fundraising, speaking in the North. Um, she builds quite a reputation for herself. There was there were even some Northern Jewish women's organizations that would request her to come as a regular speaker. And then as she's discerning her own call, even with all of this experience and um, you know on the ground kind of acclaim, she still was doubting whether God had called her. The picture on the cover of the book is Prathia speaking at a mass meeting in Southwest Georgia in 1962 before she understood that she was called to preach. And you see her standing there. I mean, she's She's glowing with prophetic power and everyone talked about the way that she talked and how the room would come to a standstill to hear what she would say. And then we, we read about the difficulty she had trying to pursue theological education, trying to um, establish herself in ministry, how she was only at Mount Sharon and never had opportunity to advance to a more prestigious pulpit. If she were a man this whole story would have been completely different. If she were a man, she would have been president of any denomination she cared to lead. And, and I think her story is important because there are so many women of all races, but particularly black women who have been gaslighted by the church into doubting their own call. Rivia would use the language of surrendered identity. If you're called in ministry and you deny that call, it's the same as if Jesus had surrendered his identity in the wilderness. That's from one of her sermons. And and so she not only offers this this exceptional model of faithfulness to the call amidst racism, sexism, ageism, classism, um, heteronormativity against all of those oppressive forces, but she also offered theological challenges. So, freedom faith is her theological conviction that God made all of us to be free, and that God equips and sustains those who work for freedom. It was originally nurtured by her father, who would read people like Howard Thurman and Adam Clayton Powell with her as a child, and he would talk about what it meant and uh, what what that would mean for her life. And so, through her experiences in the movement, in ministry. Freedom faith evolved into what she would later describe as a womanist vision of freedom faith that all forms of oppression are wrong, and that those who that God has made us all to be free, and so those who claim to follow God have a responsibility, a calling, an obligation to not only work for their own liberation but to work for that of others, to dismantle oppressive systems that that would harm the people of God. She often talked about the, the heritage of black churches, that the freedom faith is in the DNA of black churches, because they were literally born in what she called that twin striving of political freedom and spiritual freedom. You don't have one without the other. And so I think it's important for her story to come out because she has so much to teach us. And, and a lot of her work was done in political context, very similar to that in which we find ourselves again. Um, You know, she's, she's preaching in the age of Nixon and Reagan and Bush. And here we are in the age of Trump. She's offering theological challenges rooted in scripture. What does it mean to be the people of God in this time? What should churches be thinking about investing in committing themselves to? And, and particularly as conservative evangelicalism has tried to hijack Western Christianity for itself, she offers a very profound prophetic call to people of faith, to uh, really anyone invested in the well-being of communities, that we have a responsibility to love each other. It's not about personal piety. It's not about personal gain. It's about hand-in-hand, heart-to-heart. It's about walking together so that all could be free.
1: So what about womanism or using a womanist lens allows Katia Hall to encapsulate multiple forms of oppression or fighting multiple forms of oppression what tools does womanism have that allows her to speak, speak against heteronormativity, to speak against homophobia, to speak against classism, racism, colorism? What about womanism and using a woman's lens allows people to speak that truth of power to keep those different systems?
2: Sure. I'm happy to offer an introductory answer, but I think... Uh, as your listeners are wanting to really understand womanism, it would be helpful to read the work of womanists. People like Martha Simmons, Melva Sampson, Tamora Lomax, Will Gaffney have written wonderful pieces explaining womanism, their womanist methodology. And so I'm happy to serve as a pointer to them. Um, but But because I'm white, I can't be a womanist. Womanism is Using is a methodology rooted in the experiences of black women, embracing the agency of black women, the embodied knowing of black women to work against all forms of oppression. So, white feminism, and and we would just call it feminism, but it really served the interests of white women in that it looked at gender, but it didn't look at race or class or any other systemic forms of oppression. Womanism as a term emerged in the 1980s, originally found in Alice Walker's In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. And, you know, by 1985, there's an AAR, American Academy of Religion, interest group led by womanist scholars like Emily Towns, Cheryl Townsend-Jilks. Um, and they, they really crafted a womanist methodology, particularly in religious studies, although womanism, like feminism, is a lens you can apply to any discipline or any art form. Womanism doesn't it, it, it sort of reverses where the center of the story is? So, for example, Prathia, one of Prithia's best sermons was when the hurts don't heal from Job, and she's reflecting on the experience of having lost her daughter Simone. But instead of focusing on Job, she focuses on Job's wife. So, who's the who is the woman in the story whose perspective is minimized, whose agency is minimized, but who may be a revelation of how God is showing up in the story, so she talks about everything Job lost. Mrs. Job had lost, and she doesn't have the benefit of being part of the relationship that's causing all this suffering in her life, and she doesn't have access to the religious leaders who are coming trying to comfort her husband. Right. So, what does it look like when you reverse those narratives? Or um, Prithia has a brilliant sermon on the woman with the issue of blood, and. Uh, focuses on the lived experiences of that woman and how she was uniquely equipped to understand Jesus's revelation in a new way and then is proclaimed is, is sent out to proclaim holy peace that message of shalom to her community um, and so womanism it gives us a, a hermeneutic of suspicion toward patriarchy racism and classism in the text but it also gives us a concern for the experiences of oppression on the lived realities of people, particularly um, as Kimberly Crenshaw would give us vocabulary for the intersectional elements of oppression. So, um, if you're a Black woman, you can't just think about race or class, or I mean, or gender. You're always thinking about both because your identity is simultaneously both. You can't switch one off. And in Prithia's work on the Women's Auxiliary to the National Baptist Convention, She's looking at these women leaders who are building hospitals and missions organizations and HBCU. I mean, they're really building the infrastructure of Black Baptist life in the United States, and yet they are pressured to submit to male authority when they're the ones who are doing the work. And so she calls it this dilemma, this paradox of being Black and female and how so often institutional churches force Black women to choose one or the other instead of living fully into both identities. And so womanism brings us consciousness of those kinds of questions and insists that we not look at oppression as a one-dimensional factor, but that oppression, oppressive forces compound, exacerbating the depth of suffering, the depth of marginalization of certain kinds of people, and ultimately arguing that we can't tackle them one at a time. There are some who think let's deal with racism and then when that's better then we can look at gender but they're all interwoven and interconnected we have to oppose oppression collectively completely wholly we can't piecemeal it and so um womanism as a methodology is is i think one of the most prophetic voices in christianity globally today the way that um i mean you could you could say that womanism is responsible for black lives matter because it comes out of the lived experiences of three black women in the midst of police brutality of young black men, where the church was not willing to get involved. And so they said, okay, we've got this. And they've now created an international movement in support of black lives against police brutality and terrorism. So um, for those who are unfamiliar with womanism, find a, a book by a womanist scholar in a field that you like. And if you're not an academic, then read anything by Alice Walker. Or Toni Morrison, and and let those just examine the the kinds of ways the stories change, the questions change, the characterizations change when Black women are at the center of that story. And and ask yourself, what have I been missing about who God is and how God is at work in the world? Because I've been either directly erasing the stories of Black women or complicit with the erasing of stories of Black women. And for those who um, are more familiar with womanism, I'm so grateful for this now third wave of womanist scholars in every discipline who are writing prolifically, who are giving public addresses. There really is a treasure trove of resources. If institutional academics, community leaders will have the courage to hear that womanist challenge and put it into practice in the way that we treat each other and the way that we organize our communities.
1: Thank you. That was a really helpful overview of that way of that lens of understanding the world and how people navigate the world. Um, speaking of Toni Morrison, when I was reading your work, I thought a lot about her work, The Side of Memory, and how she talks about counter-memories or ways that people who have been historically oppressed um, can reimagine histories, events, and spaces in the ways that they experience them. So not in a way that has historically been imagined or it has been Im- imagined by hegemonic narratives, but the ways that people who have experienced like violent oppression are imagining, it for, are imagining it for themselves. So in that way, how does your work serve as a counter memory to the side of memory that is a civil rights movement?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: If you go to any civil rights museum or read a, a book about the civil rights movement even those that are striving to break out of the great man theory of history still focus on great men and the institutions that they've built. Whereas freedom faith sees the value in the agency of absolutely everyone. Um, one of the most uh, profound things that Preetia Hall learned in the movement was what she called the the wisdom of the ages. The, she She even created a definition of freedom faith in that context that I'm going to trust God to take me down to the courthouse and sign my name. And I'm going to trust God to bring me back. And the, the courage, the faith in the freedom of God that had been passed down from generation to generation in Southwest Georgia created this, a different understanding of what was happening. So enslavement was never part of God's will. Sharecropping, economic exploitation was never part of God's will. But yet people were doing that heinous atrocity on black people and blaming it on God, which to to Prithia Hall was a complete abomination. And so um, if you tell the story from the perspective of black agency amidst white terrorism, God had been at work generation after generation, raising people up to lead communities toward freedom. In some cases, that looks like people teaching others how to read. In some cases, that looks like, you know, personal acts of resistance, like working slowly or um, perhaps keeping a bit of whatever you were harvesting for your own family, or um, even something as simple as dancing in joy and not letting the experience of enslavement or sharecropping take away your human freedom to feel joy. Uh, And so by the time Crathia Hall is in southwest Georgia, there were several families who had been leading movements for freedom in those communities for a long time in Southwest Georgia. It was the Harrises, the, uh, the Daniels. And so they take these workers into their homes and, you know, provide shelter for them, which was a tremendous risk. Pretty much every church that was connected with the movement was burned to the ground, vandalized, members were brutalized. Um, and so these counter memories are, are not, you know, white people oppressed us. And, you know, in spite of that, we rose it's let's not define ourselves in terms of what's happened to us. Let's define ourselves in terms of who God has made us to be. So God has made black people, according to Prathia Hall, as, as proclaimers of faith, as, um, those who are so committed to their identity of being made in the image of God that they wouldn't allow anyone to remove that identity from them, who found creative ways to carve out their own space, their own communities, their own um, hermeneutical understandings of biblical texts. And when they couldn't read, they they used oral tradition. And when they didn't have access to formal education, they, they educated each other. And when they didn't have access to voting, they, they joined in the work of SNCC, going door to door, encouraging people to vote, covering chores so folks could go to mass meetings. Um, it fits in with, with Tony, Tony Morrison is also, she's, so she's a writer, but she's using a womanist lens in the way that she writes. And instead of looking at the traditional time periods of history, the traditional focuses of history, what happens when we center black women? how do they understand the story what's happening if we tell it only from their perspective and it really does change the narrative significantly so if i were to tell you the story of the civil rights movement using only women i'm going to start at someone like Ida B Wells who's exposing the double standard of lynching black men for alleged sexual assault of white women when white men suffered virtually no consequence for assaulting black women and then i'm going to move to folks like Polly Murray who was uh, uh, LGBT, who was um, the first ordained Black woman in the Episcopalian Church, who was uh, helping create nonviolent resistance with people like Jim Farmer and Howard Thurman in that you know that golden age of Black theological and intellectual formation, and then that'll take me to someone like Ella Baker, who is single-handedly responsible for SNCC. Dr. King wanted to merge the young people into what SCLC was doing and Ella Baker was the one who said no they see this movement a different way you have to give them freedom and and then people like Prethea Hall who joined SNCC's work in 1962 and and the women in the SNCC office who were handling all of the communications and logistics for all the workers everywhere that SNCC was to women like Fannie Lou Hamer who loved the energy of the young people and and um, used her testimony to expose racism within the Democratic Party at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, and then that might lead us to the significant role of, uh, you know, the wives of leaders, people like um, Merle Evers and uh, Mamie Till Mobley, who was the mother of Emmett Till, to Coretta Scott King, to um, Betty Shabazz, and and even the women who played such a large role in the Black Panther Party, and and how they've continued to shape not only Black culture, but also uh, Black churches, Black faith, Black families. I mean, really, if you erase the influence of women, there's not much left. Women have always been the backbone of churches, which means they've always been the backbone of Black communities, Black families, Black towns, um, Black education. And, And so that counter memory, it doesn't just modify the story. It tells a brand new story which should convict us All of why have we never asked these questions before? Why, why, when we read a history written by a Western white man, do we just assume that it's right and not become more engaged readers to ask? Well, where are the women in the story? Where are leaders of color? Where are those protesting against the dominant social class? And so, in the last several years, social sciences, humanities have become a lot richer because they've been open to those kinds of questions. And the original challenges in all those issues were largely brought by scholars of color, particularly Black women, who even when Black men are moved into centers of influence, still somehow are not are not remembered in the story. And so bringing Black women to the table really ensures more equity for everyone.
1: Agreed. And I, I think what's really cool about this work is that it's a biography of Papia Hall, but we get all these different snippets and interesting facts about all the other women who helped shape her and mold her into who she was and women and men though but we just see a glimpse of like the community that she arises from and the family that molded her beliefs, her political ideology, um, her commitments, her values. What's the importance of, of describing Katya Hall's life in a way that provides that context rather than just describing her as a singular figure but also what's the importance of describing the community and her biological family, but also her extended family and her chosen family that helped to create her into the person that she, the the work that she did.
2: Two common stereotypes used against Black women are the the mammy that Black women must always be androgynously maternal, caring for others, strong, and happy about it. And another uh, stereotype is the the angry Black woman who is impossible to get along with and is you know just concerned for her own well-being both of those tropes have been used against Freythea Hall and as i engaged in my research i understood i understood more deeply the importance of letting her humanity show through so that other women in leadership other women experiencing call other women struggling in racist, sexist, classist institutions could have role models, particularly that of Prathia, what does it look like to be a woman, to be a woman of color in these settings, right? So she has kind of a pushy mom, but her mom was giving her opportunities to do public speaking and encouraging her. And at one point she said, I bet my mom was called, but never had the pastoral imagination to see it that way. You know, she thought she was just called to be a Sunday school teacher. And um, I think I think it's important that we see Prithia as someone who has a difficult relationship with her mother, but fought throughout her life to maintain that relationship as a very positive one, to have her children have a good relationship with her mother as well. Um, she adored her father and he tragically passed away in a train accident while she was in college. And I don't think she ever... Fully recovered from that loss. He was her greatest intellectual mentor. And the fact that he died almost the same year that she joins the movement, um, to me, suggests that the one was very connected to the other and will always be a determining factor in how she understands her activism. And then you look at um, Praethea, like many women in the movement, came back with PTSD. We didn't have that language back then. But, um, you know, if you read like the Diary of Ann Moody, it's very obvious. They had been in combat. They had been shot at in their sleep and scared at the turn of every corner. They had PTSD. And so Prathia dealt with that by marrying a man that she'd been on again, off again with throughout the movement. They had two children. And, uh, you know, she did some community work in Roosevelt, New York, where her husband's job was, but was still struggling with her call. I think a lot of us have have struggled with that tension between Wanting to be in a traditional family role, but also wanting to fulfill call in our life, and and then then you see her as this lens of a working mother going back to school, even having to negotiate with her partner for support to do that, and ultimately having to leave her marriage to continue her call. And then um, in the last two years, there have been several black women named as deans and presidents of theological education, which is wonderful. And I hope that we're just at the beginning of a hill that climbs steeply. But for so many years, and even still today, Black women are hired in institutions for diversity counts, but then not given any influence, not given any power, and harassed and in some cases brutalized by the institutions themselves. So it's like they want to hire black women to be there, but what they want black women to say is that the institution is really great and nothing needs to change. So when black women faculty members speak up against racism, speak up against sexism, speak up about the way that admissions processes permanently disadvantage lower classes, people of color, um there suddenly those institutions turn on those women and call them difficult call them stubborn call them angry and and you can see that Prithia dealt with that in a couple of institutions where she was she was trying to develop an infrastructure of support for women at United Theological Seminary in Dayton she was trying to build up the DMin program for those who've since to call to ministry and wanted a doctoral level degree but didn't need to go for a PhD. And she's doing all this while she's a single mother of two kids, while she's commuting back and forth between Philadelphia and um, New Jersey, while she's um, trying to finish her PhD in, um, in New Jersey and still trying to finish her divorce. And, and there are, me- as a seminary professor, I can tell you, most of our students are juggling all of those demands and more while they're in school or something very equivalent to it. And so um, Prathia's womanist example helps us see what does it look like for a woman to be faithfully herself in a hostile environment? What does it look like for a person of color to be faithfully themselves in a hostile environment? And who are the unlikely enemies who you thought you could count on who are really not looking out for you like they said they would, and where are other people who face similar oppression who can stand with you in solidarity? And so um, I think her story gives us a lens to look at lots of different things. That's one of the reasons why I chose her for my doctoral research. Is we, I mean, you really could use her story to look at American religious history from the 1940s to the 2000s. Um, you, you can you can see how race, gender, class, sexuality, how all of those issues are flourishing on a national stage, how she's contextualizing them theologically, biblically in the in congregations and how that is affecting the way that uh, parachurch organizations, secular organizations, nonprofits nationally are working together and in some cases against each other based on their understanding of what does it mean to be the hands and feet of Christ in these times. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I'm I'm just so grateful to be a part of this work as nothing else has shaped me as much. And my hope is that those who read the book will find uh, will find inspiration for themselves. will find a fresh word of God preached by Prathia. And you may notice as you read the book that I quote a lot, uh, probably more than most scholars do. But I did that because it was important to me for Prathia to tell her own story. I I meant only to be a scribe in a way. I mean, I did use historical methodology. I did a significant amount of research to piece together what, you know, the events of her lifetime. But I really, the last thing the world needs is another book where a white person makes the story about a black person really about white people. This story was about Prathia's prophetic ministry, about her influence on black church and on American religion holistically. The way that she supported Black clergy women, and and how many resources are now available for Black clergy women that wouldn't have been possible without the the widening of the path that Prathia did. Um, And I'm sorry, I've forgotten what your original question was. I just get so excited talking about this. Um, But but Freedom Faith really does give us this wonderful challenge to examine ourselves, examine the world around us, to be open to seeing oppressive forces wherever they are, and to have faith that God will be with us as we work against oppressive forces in the lives of people.
1: I think what keeps recurring in my mind is the word honesty and also the word truth and how just now, I mean, you're honest about your own positionality as a white, as a white author writing a story about a black woman, a, a Smith organizer and the work that she did in her life and why it's important to tell her story. But I think also having all those quotes from Praetheel was important. So we learned about how she's honest even with the Southerners. I remember there's a quote where she she talks to a Southern audience of, I think, African-American leaders and tells them that they're partially the blame for um, the, the horrors of segregation. Um, and I also just reading it, I'm, I think it's really honest about like, the fact that it is terrorism and not just like a, a clash between different cultures or a clash between different types of people, but you know, you name it as, you know, like this is terrorism. You, you talk about the 42 churches that were burned and bombed between 1962 and 1963, I believe, or 1961, 1963, I believe. So what, what powers can be evoked by naming things as they are, um, you know, instead of describing it as just like a disagreement or just like, racial conflict, but actually describing it or naming the fact that you know this is a terrorist experience a domestic an instance of domestic terrorism.
2: People's lives are on the line. And one of the ways Southern respectability has <laughs> perpetuated and been complicit in lives lost is insisting that we be polite instead of honest we we don't want to offend anybody so we're careful how we say everything to the point that we don't say what needs to be said when whiteness would justify killing people to preserve white power that is terrorism so there there's there are different ways people worship in different ways. People enjoy spending time together. Those are not the kind of differences we're talking about. One literally depends on the dehumanization of another. So if your understanding of yourself in the world is that you're better than someone else and you have a right to take their life, to wound them, to defuturize them at your will, you've made yourself a God. That's an idolatry, a bigotry. And as Prithia would say, now you're going to blame that bigotry on God. She would say the living God is not a bigot. And so she, she described that as bondage doctrine, that patriarchal dominance hierarchy, to draw some language from bell hooks, that, that patriarchal dominance, that's bondage doctrine. But what, what God was trying to create in those first humans, Prithia would say, are two partners to work together in harmony with all other living things. And so, instead of organizing ourselves in these circles of support and loving care, we've organized ourselves in hierarchical triangles, one on each other's back. So, if if I'm I'm just going to use the example of um, Eric Eric Garner, excuse me. So, imagine the video that we all saw of his death, where someone is literally standing on his neck, and he's saying, "I can't breathe," and There are some people who would say, well, you shouldn't talk back to a police officer. So in that moment, really what's more important is polite speech than the fact that a police officer is killing someone in public in broad daylight and will not be held legally responsible for that death. And his daughter, Eric Garner's daughter, worked so hard in advocacy after her father died that she ended up dying not long after, uh, just, just wearing herself out in this quest for freedom and justice. And um, so that's why I think it's important to tell the truth. People's lives are on the line, you know, and, and now there are folks arguing about whether the cages at the border are concentration camps or not. Well, they're not tents, right? They are cages where people are being held prisoner against their will without adequate sanitation, nutrition, resources, People are dying. People are being sexually assaulted. People are being brutalized. That sounds like a concentration camp. And I know America has this distorted view of itself that, um, that you know, America's always the best at everything and, and we're a land of the free. And there probably are some people with so much privilege that they may understand their experiences in that way. But most Americans have never been free. African-Americans have never fully experience the privileges of citizenship. And so until we can all be free, none of us is. We've just simply been with privilege of the group that has power at that time. And so whether you're looking at, um, you know, movements for reproductive justice or education or access to healthcare, if, if if white patriarchy can perpetuate the disenfranchisement and defuturization of people of color, then they can perpetuate white power. But if everyone actually has access to education and healthcare and a bright future, then the demographics of our leadership is gonna change. The demographics of um, our economy are gonna change. And those are good things. That's how we're gonna all have what we need. That's that sense of Old Testament justice that everyone has enough. And our society is organized where some people have a lot more than they need and other people don't have enough. And freedom faith calls us to work against anything where someone doesn't have enough so that we can all be free as God intended.
1: So that closing sentence reminds me of, you know, the tenets of liberation theology, that God is on the side of the oppressed. Um, How do you feel that freedom faith aligns or differentiates from that, that belief, that liberation theological tenet of God being on the side of the oppressed?
2: Paul had been developing the idea of freedom faith long before Gutierrez or Cohn had published their work using the language of liberation theology. But I think the concepts are actually quite similar. The idea that God works on behalf of those who are oppressed. Um, Where freedom faith perhaps clarifies or adds some nuance is that God never intended the oppression And God will equip and sustain those who work for freedom and liberation, which I think a liberation theologian would agree with also. right? Liberation theology typically is defined as God's preferential option for the oppressed, which implies God's agency on behalf of those who are oppressed. And we could take that one step further. Those who work in support of removing oppression, which Freedom Faith just seeks to add those nuances, although it didn't come out of reading Gutierrez or Cohn. It came out of the, the intellectual and spiritual formation led by her father, contextualized in the civil rights movement, and then later in her own experience of being a Black woman in ministry.
1: So the qualifier there is that God is on the side of those who seek justice for so those who are oppressed and those who also are fighting for justice and liberation exactly
2: and and so womanist religious scholarship um would have that same commitment and would typically is viewed as a component of liberation theology um so you know pravia had been using this language of freedom faith, and then as she found herself as she found that her voice was what folks were starting to call womanist she she I'm doing my hands in a circle, almost like I'm forming a ball of dough. Like she's, she formed her understanding of freedom faith and it became her womanist vision of freedom for everybody. And and for her, it's particularly rooted in the roles of black churches and black communities, which again might be a little bit more specific than, um, you know, broad liberation theology that doesn't, doesn't focus on a particular context, but throughout her research and her preaching, he was very focused on the roles of Black churches in Black communities and the roles of Black communities in Black churches.
1: Could you speak a little bit more to the intrinsic nature or the alignment between faith and the civil rights movement? And I know you spoke a lot about how that played out in the life of Katia Hall, but just um, providing a, a more general context about that alignment. Yeah, absolutely. So the,
2: the civil rights movement... Uh, is as old as the story of the enslavement of Africans in America. When we talk about the modern civil rights movement, we typically mean 1954 to 1968. Um, It's a secular movement in that it's seeking political change, but almost every major actor in that movement was a religious leader. So even if we go back prior to the, the, um, the, the modern civil rights movement. You know, Ida B. Wells was a Sunday school teacher and was very connected in her local congregation. Polly Murray was Episcopalian priest. Um, and then we move into the modern civil rights movement. You know, King was a minister, as was almost everybody in SDLC. Uh, SNCC was led by a lot of seminary students, people like John Lewis, Charles Sherrod, Charlie Cobb. I mean, they were all in seminary and ended up joining the movement, even someone like Bob Zellner. So that's an interracial point of commonality, and and if you listen to the music of the movement, most of the songs were spirituals that had been reimagined in the context of the 1950s and 60s. Um, mass meetings very commonly were held in churches. So while the movement itself was for you know registering people to vote and gaining public access to services for all people. What was driving folks to get involved in the movement more often than not was a commitment of faith rooted in love for everybody and justice for everybody. Now, there were people of many faiths who shared that story. So even if we just look at SNCC, you know, you have someone like Prathia who's Baptist. Uh, that was overwhelmingly the tradition you have someone like Bob Zellner who's United Methodist you have someone like Faith Holsart, who's Jewish and and more of she called herself nominally Jewish um then you look at SCLC you have people like Rabbi Abraham Heschel who was involved there was a Greek Orthodox priest um there were uh and Buddhists and people who were uh, Judy Richardson described herself as uh, I can't remember if it was atheist or agnostic but not a person of faith still being moved to tears by the proclamation of faith that God meant everybody to be free and how much that worked to sustain people in the movement. So, uh, so they, they were intricately woven together, the sense that we are to be spiritually free and that that obligated us to take certain political action
1: in secular realms rooted in our religious convictions. Thank you. I that really provides the good context of the interface work also that happened in the civil rights movement that I think is not commonly known. Um, yeah, so in closing, what do you hope readers will gain from learning about the story of Sophia Hall? And what aims do you hope her story will fulfill in people's lives?
2: My hope is... That Prathia's story will help us all to better understand our own and how we fit in the context of God's work in our time. I hope that Prathia's story gives us audacious courage to believe that we are made in the image of God and that we have something meaningful to contribute in the work for freedom and justice where we are. Uh, Prathia never met a stranger. She could talk to a U.S. ambassador or a custodian, and she would devote the same care and concern and respect to each of them. I think there's something to be learned about about recognizing the value that each of us has. And and that in and of itself is a womanist correction, right? We, We honor credentials, but those are given by institutions that often have a lot of oppressive obstacles to overcome to gain access. But what happens if things that people know in themselves that didn't come from a book are valued as much as what we come to know in a book what if we value the the women going off into the woods and and being entranced in a ring shout what if that was as much a revelation of god's work among us as the words of of a hymn or uh, you know the latest book in theology or black church and, and i think her story invites us to to view ourselves honestly, to view the world around us honestly, and to, to deal with the ways that we may have been complicit in oppressive
1: structures
2: so that we can set that down and work toward justice and freedom. My, my hope is also that this work gives a swift challenge to progressive denominations that say they affirm women in ministry and justice more broadly, but actually aren't doing it in the way that they live. Um, I did an article about 10 years ago on the state of Black Baptist women in ministry, and in most denominations, even those that affirm the ordination of women, women still make up a single-digit percentage of pastors in those denominations. So there are groups that are saying they affirm women in ministry that aren't actually appointing women to be pastors of churches. Investing in Women in Leadership of the Denominations, Investing in Seminary Education of Women. Uh, and I think Prathia, particularly the chapter on the Baptist church is going to have to deal with me. She offers a strong word of correction to churches that, where I think we all have something to learn. As a historian, I hope people will see this work as an innovation on biography that it, you know, I'm telling her life story, but I'm also trying to do it through the lens of her deepest theological conviction. I had to go beyond traditional resources to do this work as well. So there's a a huge number of oral history interviews that were done over the span of about a decade. I went to the 50th anniversary of SNCC and to worth in Southwest Georgia. I formed personal relationships with people in the movement, many of whom wanted to know me for a couple of years before they were willing to talk to me um, and have now become dear friends. But that kind of trust building, immersing myself in those environments was was critical to gaining access to the work. I had to go through archives of um, SNCC, of SELC, FBI files, which required getting Social Security numbers. And then anytime I knew about a court case, I had to contact that county courthouse to get there. I mean, I just I had to go to a lot of links to get the resources to do this book, um, but it allowed me to do something really new and really important, and I hope that historians who have pressing questions will see this as example of how you can be creative and do really good history outside of the methodology in which you were trained, right? Interdisciplinary work has a lot to offer historians. And you could read this book in a a class on religion. You could read it in a Black Studies class. You could read it in a Women's Studies class. You could read it in a History class. I mean, it really can be multifaceted. And it was exciting to do that kind of work. Um, And I'm hoping that the brilliance of Krathea's life, ministry, and preaching will continue to inspire new generations for what will freedom faith look like in our time. Thank you,
1: Dr. Case.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to talk with you.
1: Yeah, and I think this work will be really useful to the newest generation of organizers and activists to have a model of someone that really encapsulated all forms of justice, um, fighting heteronormativity, fighting capitalist forms of injustice, fighting homophobia, classism, racism, and really being honest about herself and the people that she served, being a bridge builder between different types of communities. It's just going to be really useful. So I'm really excited.
2: Well, thank you. I I hope that it is a meaningful contribution to the work of people of faith.